Without further ado, Ken Wilson is going to be bringing us the message this morning. All right. Thank you, Emily. I'm, uh, I'm feel it, feeling pretty good about myself. Uh, Ty, I, I realized it's Groundhog Day for my wardrobe. I'm wearing like a black t-shirt maybe five days out of, out of seven. And I thought, Sunday, I'm going to step it up. I want to get me one of those skinny black ties that was hip probably in the 1990s. And sure enough, I got me a, a tie and it's uh, shiny and it's pretty awesome. And I'm feeling pretty good about myself, I must admit. So um, uh, our topic today is Exodus and its most bizarre story. And that's, uh, that's saying a lot. So I, I've been in a deep dive with Exodus since Pentecost. And our, our, I think we'll probably continue our Exodus theme interspersed with other topics as we go forward into the fall. But our, our nation is really engaged. Why Exodus is so important right now, especially, is that there are two different readings of Exodus that are competing, that, and there's a lot at stake. Um, the first reading actually goes back to the British colonizers who came to the Americas thinking they were the new Israel coming out of Egypt, you know, England, uh, and James, then King George was the Pharaoh. And they spoke very explicitly in, in terms of the Exodus story in this way. And of course, then they felt entitled to a westward land grab, like it was their manifest destiny. Um, uh, their wealth now fueled by the labor of enslaved Africans. But the enslaved Africans in America, when they encounter uh, the book of Exodus, they read it quite differently. So the colonizers are the Pharaoh-led Egyptians, and they are the Hebrews in bondage. And God is the one who hears their cries and is opposed to the Egyptians and Pharaoh. So today, we, we've got this working out in our body politic, in our culture, in our society, in our hearts, in our minds. Um, today, the whitewashed Christianity, you know, like Exodus is like a Disney cartoon. Um, for the black church, it's liberation theology. And many of us are like the rich young man who comes to Jesus saying, good teacher, what must I do to inherit the life of the new age? And he replies, what does the law say? Meaning Torah, the five books of Moses, including Exodus. How do you read it? Now, how do we read it? That's really important. A lot's at stake. So maybe it's all this social distancing. But recently, um, when I, I, I take a little time to pray often before dinner. Um, I've got that luxury and it's awesome. Um, and lately, uh, my late wife, Nancy, is sitting there next to me and my old friend, Phyllis Tickle, who passed on in 2015. Uh, sometimes Glenn or Blanche Wilson seem to sidle up and, and lately Moses is among them um, in my, I guess, imagination, praying imagination, whatever. I don't know how it works. Um, I, I actually think what we call the transfiguration in the Gospels where Moses and Elijah are with Jesus on the mountain in a cloud is probably just like a dramatic unveiling of what sometimes happens when ordinary people pray. Um, so recently when I was in this kind of space, I asked Moses, I found myself asking Moses, it wasn't like premeditated, what was it like the time God tried to kill you? So now that I have your attention, I should say I... I have a teacher who's been helping me read Exodus, and her name is Aviva Gottlieb Zornberg. Uh, she was introduced to me by Caroline Kittle, who knows this stuff real good. And uh, Moses, A Human Life is the book I would recommend if you're interested 
in Aviva Gottlieb Zornberg, and she reads Torah in a very Jewish way, uh, which I've been finding so helpful um, and better than the way I learned. Um, because the Jewish way is informed by Midrash, Midrash, M-I-D-R-A-S-H, which is, uh, it's like stories about the stories in Torah. Torah means the first five books, the law of uh, the books of Moses. Uh, uh, Midrash is like earnestly and playfully embellishing the stories in Torah, filling in the gaps, interpreting, poking at, asking questions, protesting. Um, and this approach is really um, part of what it means to step into the glorious liberty of the children of God. This is a phrase in Paul's writing, but he must have been thinking about Exodus and the liberation, the glorious liberty of the children of God, so we can learn from the children of God about how to engage their book. So in the glorious liberty of the children of God, we get to disagree with God in Torah sometimes. Uh, we can be a conscientious objector. Uh, we can challenge what we read. We can protest. We can wrestle through. And in that process, we grow and come to know God like Jacob did the night he came back to, uh, to face Esau. This is in the book of Genesis. And he wrestled with God and prevailed. So the Bible is not um, a here's how to think book. That's how it's often taught. Here's how to think. If you hear someone say, here's how to think, ooh, that's it. they might as well just say, I'd like to wash your brain. <laughs> but it's, it's a book to get you thinking and engaging and undergoing God if possible. So before we get to the time God tried to kill Moses, I'm kind of baiting you with that <laughs> rhetorically. You notice I should mention that a key to reading scripture with the glorious liberty of the children of God is how to engage scripture when it comes to us in myth mode, M-Y-T-H, myth mode. Um, so, you know, like us, the ancients had different kinds of stories. Um, they had stories about things that happened to them, which are always interpretations of things that happened to them. They have stories uh, that were passed on from the ancestors. They had stories in the form of poems and pithy uh, sayings that were used in stories. And of course they had mythic stories. So Exodus is, is like a patchwork of stories that have been circulating in oral form for a long time. And then uh, some editor or group of editors saw a coherence in all these different stories and they put it all together in a coherent narrative. Um, so there's really no constant single vision of God that we can call biblical. What there is is an evolving vision that's drawing from many sources as God becomes known progressively, including sections and fragments uh, throughout the Bible that are mythic. So myth doesn't mean false. That's like a modern um, prejudice. That's how modern people think about old myths. It's just false. It's just made up. No, um, myths are ways of telling certain truths experienced by certain people that often... Um, they just defy other ways of telling. Um, origin stories are almost always in the form of myths. Uh, the Noah flood is certainly a myth. And the time God tried to kill Moses has many marks of the mythic. So to, the way to engage a myth is not to say, oh, those childish 
ancients and their myths. We know better um, because we have our myths too. Um, well, like they're called dreams and our dreams sometimes know better than we do. Um, we don't ask our dreams, did this really happen? Except when we first wake up. <laughs> um, you know, did I show up in my pajamas and then had to get that bear out of the hallway? Um, we don't ask those questions when we're reflecting on our dreams, but our dreams often, not always, but often mean something. They, they reveal something that daytime thinking doesn't. So the way to engage myth is not to ask, did this really happen? Uh, a better way, I think, is to ask, what would this mean if this were a dream? So when I was uh, praying before dinner that one time, and it seemed like Moses was in my, I guess, imaginative prayer awareness, and I asked him, what was like when God tried to kill you? Owing to the influence of Aviva Gottlieb Zornberg, I knew it was time for me to engage this bizarro story. It must have been on my mind. Um, and I, I, I tried to do it in the way that I was learning from uh, Aviva Gottlieb Zornberg. So here's the setup. Um, Moses is born um, a Hebrew, Israelite, same, same meaning, but raised Egyptian in Pharaoh's household. As a young man, perhaps he knows he was born a Hebrew, um, maybe not, maybe he learns it later in life, uh, like someone who learns he was adopted from another country, and then he's drawn to the people of his biological origin. Um, he's working through some deep issues of identity. His early interactions with Hebrews in slavery are messed up bad. I mean, he's got his version of the white savior complex, um, which is a function of privilege. So. Moses kills an Egyptian who's abusing a Hebrew who's a slave. Um, that puts all the Israelites at risk. It's a stupid thing for Moses to have done. Um, Moses thinks no one from Egypt has seen this, but when he visits the Hebrews again, coming from his you know, palace, um, they all know what he did and they want nothing to do with him. And he realizes, oh my, oh, Pharaoh must know by now, word is gonna get back to him. In fact. Pharaoh is now looking to kill Moses. So Moses flees to Midian, um, which is beyond the Egyptian borders. It's kind of a nomadic region. Um, and he lives in Midian for years. Um, he goes to a well early on where seven Midianite sisters are drawing water. A group of shepherds uh, starts to harass the women. And with his newfound savior complex, born of privilege, <laughs> Moses you know, rescues them. But in so doing, he endears himself to these sisters, and he marries one named Zipporah. Zipporah. Remember that name. Then Moses has his epic encounter at the burning bush that Cedric was talking about last Sunday. Um, this is a classic mystical encounter. This is the turning point. Um, whatever human empathy Moses can muster for the Hebrews is just totally inadequate. I mean, how can he understand their experience having been raised in such privilege? Um, this kind of understanding can only come by virtue of a divine encounter, and he has one with the God of the four letters, too holy to name, in the burning bush, a name that means I am who am, or I will be who will be, as if to say, you know, from a place of privilege, we cannot know the suffering of the oppressed without 
a divine encounter. From the burning bush, God reveals his anguish over the suffering of the Hebrews, and then he calls Moses to go back to Egypt and confront Pharaoh. First, Moses has to get his father-in-law Jethro's permission to return because um, as a foreigner, Moses is under Jethro's protection. Permission is granted. He begins the journey with his wife, Zipporah, and their son to uh, back to Egypt. And there follows one of the strangest portions in all the Bible, Exodus 4:24. On the way, at a place where they spent the night, or in a hotel at an inn, the Lord met him and tried to kill him. But Zipporah took a flint and cut off her son's foreskin and touched Moses' feet with it and said, Truly you are a bridegroom of blood to me. So he, so God, let him alone. So this, this has a lot of the marks of a mythic encounter, a mystical mythic encounter. It, it happens at night. Um, was Moses asleep? And this is a dream encounter. Um, the daytime rules are suspended as happens in dreams. And what's this? The, the Lord met him and tried to kill him? God tried, he exerted effort, he tried to kill him? I mean, mere mortals have to try to kill someone and are often successful when they try. Here's God trying without success. Um, God tried to kill him. So these are dreamland rules. These are not waking rules. Uh, Robert Alter, the you know Hebrew scholar, says this portion um, appears much older than the rest of Exodus. It's a, like an archaic fragment borrowed by the Exodus storyteller from an earlier time. As is the case in many mythic stories in the Bible, they're borrowed from really early times, uh, often from other stories circulating in the region. So God tried to kill Moses one night actually echoes another mystical encounter in Genesis, doesn't it? When Jacob, who's the founder of what becomes Israel, was on his way back from to his homeland after a long absence in another country where he got his wives and he had to ask permission from his father-in-law, Laban, to leave. And he's coming back and there's a nighttime encounter with God or an angel and it says, Jacob wrestled with God at the Jabbok. And Jabbok, I guess it was a river. Jabbok is Jacob with two inverted letters, implying, implying that Jacob may be wrestling with himself or with his own projection of God. It's, it's like deep stuff. Either way, the normal rules of waking are suspended in that story as this one in Exodus. So Zipporah, cuts off the foreskin of their son's male member, like when, when she sees this, and she uses an archaic phrase, even for the book as old as Exodus, you were a bridegroom of blood to me. Now, Israel didn't invent circumcision. It was a practice adapted from other peoples, and, and they gave it its own meaning. And this phrase seems to be from that earlier non-Israelite practice of circumcision. But remember, as bizarre as it sounds to us Gentiles, um, those of us who are Gentile, in the Jewish imagination, circumcision is a practice with mystical meaning. It's, it's well beyond the literal. So what might that be? 
Um, so in his counter encounter, Moses' encounter with the unnameable God at the burning bush, when God calls him to confront Moses, Moses objects. He says, I am a man of slow speech, of thick tongue, of uncircumcised lips. He can't speak what God wants him to speak. He, he's raised in privilege. How can he speak of the suffering of the Hebrews? So, you know, well, heck, I mean, to be white in America is to participate in the inherited sin of white silence. Um, those of us who are white suffer from slowness of speech when it comes to objecting to white supremacy. Uh, we have an uncircumcised tongue to use that language. How can a white American know what a black or brown or indigenous person lives with day in and day out without having their white privilege removed, like the foreskin of a male child, which is a kind of death? So is God tried to kill Moses a way of saying in the language of a dream that something in Moses, core to his identity, his privilege, has to die? All of, all of this is possible. I'm doing Midrash. So is this the kind of dream we have if God should call us to proceed at great risk to ourselves? You know, we know Martin Luther King didn't sign up to be Martin Luther King. Um, the bus boycotters in Montgomery um, in the, oh, was it 1956, I think, needed a church base basement to meet in. And he was like a new pastor in town and he let them use his church basement and he had to show up for the meeting to open it up. And I think he might've been the only pastor who sh showed up, which made him like their de, de facto leader. One night he gets a call at home when the boycott goes longer than anyone thought. And a man on the phone says, leave Montgomery unless you want you and your family want to die. Um, and that's when he goes to the kitchen table, a famous uh, part of his life. And, and he says, Lord, this boycott seems like a bad idea. What, what should I do? And that's when God speaks to Martin Luther King for the first time in his accounting, just like Moses at the burning bush. That's his first time hearing from God. Only God says to Martin Luther King, Martin Luther, stand up for justice, stand up for truth, stand up for peace, and I will be at your side forever. Eventually, his house was firebombed. Um, could Martin Luther King, thus called by God, or Malcolm X, thus called by God, or the founders of Black Lives Matter, thus called, fearing the, um, you know, the inevitable hostility of the threatened white power structure, could those people identify with an encounter like Moses had that night? I think they could. But remember, this started for me when I was having my evening prayers with, uh, and I was having this feeling of Nancy and Blanche and Glenn, and I think Phyllis was hanging out around my awareness, and while I had a glass of wine and ate my chips. And then, then I was aware of Moses there, so I asked him, what was it like when God tried to kill you? Um, and in that space, my mind turned to Zipporah, the Midianite wife of Moses. So Moses, the liberation theologian, owed his life to the quick wits and the courage of six women. Um, he owed them to the, his life to the Hebrew midwives, Sifra and Pua. Uh, Emily talked about them, um, who, who disobeyed Pharaoh's, killed the male babies edict, as if women were not a threat to his power, a strategic error on Pharaoh's part, as a matter of fact. 
Then Moses owed his life to his mother, who hid him three months at great risk to herself, uh, and then placed him in a basket to be found in the Nile, uh, to his sister Miriam, who stood by, older sister Miriam stood by at risk to herself to make sure her, her baby brother was found by someone, then to Pharaoh's daughter, who took him in at no risk, <laughs> But now, in the mo most remarkable demonstration of insight and quick wits, wits that outmatch God, Zipporah knows what to do instantly, and she acts swiftly. She takes a flint, she circumcises her son, and she places the bloody foreskin on Moses' feet, which is usually a euphemism for his genitals, just to make it a little more colorful. And then God let him alone. So Moses, who would become Israel's great intercessor, with no one among the Israelites to intercede for him when he needed it, now knows firsthand what it is to have a powerful intercessor, his quick-witted Midianite wife, who steps in to save him in mythic dreamscape from God. So this awareness causes me as I'm pondering this, to remember the, you know, the, the women in my life, you, you could, I'm sure, do the same thing, who have, in a sense, saved me in some way, have been there for me, and, you know, my mother, Blanche Wilson, my sisters, my now late wife, Nancy, Julia. I mean, I think other things I've learned, uh, faith-saving things, uh, working with Emily and Diane, Caroline, Cassie, Penny, Susan. I'm, I'm not idealizing these people. All of this provoked by pondering the time God tried to kill Moses and Zipporah stepped in. So the hero of this story is not Moses, and it's certainly not God. <laughs> God is more like the villain in this story. The hero is Zipporah. So I'm watching the, the DNC this past week. Maybe some of you did. And first thing I'm thinking is, whoa, this reminds me of J Zoom Church. We could have pulled this off, you know. Um, and I'm asking, where is the spiritual energy to stand up to this wannabe strongman skateboarder in chief? I'm speaking with more personal candor as the times allow it, I think. So it's, it's Michelle Obama. Oh, the chills, the night she spoke. Uh, and, and of course, Kamala Harris, historic appointment, um, vice presidential candidate. Um, I, I remember how boldly Maxine Waters spoke up early on when the new president was starting his shenanigans and called it out with, with real boldness and clarity that really no one else at the time had. This is where the power obviously is in the, in the resistance to, to 45. Then I remember from my studies, um, Zipporah was a black woman. Zipporah was a black woman. And the one demographic group that did not lift a finger to vote for 45, bring them to power in 2016, black women. The Pew survey um, says 45 got 8% of the black vote, but that was 14% of the black male vote. But the percentage of black women who supported his rise to power is designated in the polling data by an asterisk. The asterisk means we needed an electron microscope to see it, <laughs> and they didn't have one. So who gave birth to the movement that is the most powerful call for justice in our time, 
uniting the call for racial justice to the call for justice for gender and sexual minorities, which is historic. Uh, we pray for them every Sunday and have for quite some time. Alicia Patrice Opal, founders of Black Lives Matter. Malcolm X said um, famously, the most disrespected woman in America is the black woman. You know, no president has disrespected women in, in publicly available statements than this president, his greatest venom res reserve for black women, because this is flat out white supremacy. In, in this, he's channeling our original sin. He, he's the symptom. He's the pus and the sore. He's not the cause. Jesus said, and this was in our reading that Noah gave us today, glad tidings. The first will be last and the last shall be first. This is a sign, a Jesus sign of the inbreaking new age. This is what he used to discern. What is God doing in the world? He would say, you know, the, the many who are last will be first and many who are first will be last. Did I mention that Zipporah, um, the last woman to save Moses? Um, I think I did. <laughs> uh, and with the hardest task to save him from God was a black woman. Uh, we learn this later in Numbers, which is also continues the Moses story. Numbers 12, when Miriam and Aaron, Moses' uh, uh, siblings, complained to God that their brother married a black woman, Cushite, ethnic uh, Ethiopian, God rebukes them, not Moses. So what I've offered today, I'm done, by the way, is, is Midrash. Um, it's like a more free association way of engaging scripture. Um, with stories about stories, with speculations, with uh, loose ends, with connections to my inner and our outer world. And I invite you to try it yourself sometime. Um, it's like when we think the task in engaging scripture is to find the one right interpretation, it puts us in a real box and bind with scripture. I mean, because if there's only one right interpretation, there must be many wrong ones, right? And that creates fear, uh, and fear always quenches love. So maybe it's not about the one right interpretation, but finding the many good ones that, that we have inside of ourselves to, to bring out. Okay, I think uh, I'm done. So Cassie maybe could do a meditation for us. Yes, thanks, Ken. Okay, let's move into our time of meditation. Um, Psalm 34, 4 and 5 says, I sought the Lord and she answered me and delivered me from all my fears. Those who look to her are radiant and their faces shall never be ashamed. So I usually have something that nags at me during the day on any given day, something I'm stressed or upset about, something that shifts my focus off of the good around me and in me and the people in my life. And that negativity just doesn't serve me or the people I love very well. So this morning, I just want to set all those nagging thoughts or fear or shame or annoyance or anything we're feeling that's kind of negative and stirring around inside of us. Let's set that aside for a couple of minutes. Let's turn our faces to the goodness of God for a meditation of loving kindness towards ourselves. So let's start by closing our eyes. Whatever part of your body is connected to the ground or to your chair, just really feel that grounding connection. Now let's take a deep breath in through your nose, fill your lungs. 
And then when it's comfortable to do so, release that breath through your mouth. Continue this pattern of breathing at your own comfortable pace, nice and slow. Let's start with a gratitude today. Think of something that you're grateful for. Could be something big, could be something small. As you focus on that thing you're grateful for, just allow that feeling of gratitude to fill your body head to toe as you continue to breathe slowly. Notice where that feeling of gratitude centers in your body. Breathe in gratitude, breathe out what is not serving you. Continue that for a moment. Now hang on to that feeling and think of a kind, loving affirmation. Something like, I am growing every day, or I am worthy of love. Let that affirmation settle into you. Just like we did with the gratitude, breathe in and say your affirmation to yourself and then exhale whatever is no longer serving you. Allow your breath, which is connected to the source of all life, nourish your spirit as you breathe in loving kindness for yourself. Let's continue for one more minute. If your mind begins to wander, that's okay. Just notice your thoughts pass by, bring yourself back to your affirmation.
I'm going to read those verses one more time on our last couple of breaths in and out. I sought the Lord and she answered me and delivered me from all my fears. Those who look to her are radiant and their faces shall never be ashamed. Last breath in and out. Amen.